Thank you so much for joining us for TCC at Home Together. My name is Michael Geyer, the lead pastor here at Treasuring Christ. Uh, I'm thankful that you've chosen to, to watch online uh, or to join us in one of our host homes throughout the community. Uh, what a week it has been, election week. Uh, there's been a lot of tension, a lot of discussion, uh, a lot of debate uh, leading up to this week. And, and it really is one of the, I think, one of the most unique and uh, beautiful things that we do as a nation, that uh, we have a voice uh, in who our leaders are and uh, we go and we vote uh, and then we accept the voice of the people um, and uh, move forward as a nation. And I pray that's exactly what we'll do. Uh, as uh, many of us went and voted on Tuesday, we then uh, waited. Uh, if, I don't know if you were like me and stayed up late on Tuesday night hoping to find out, but uh, we waited and we waited. Uh, and really the waiting gave way to one of the best things that happened during this election cycle. And that, uh, that is the memes and the gifts that were created uh, to, uh, uh, to either uh, bemoan having to wait so long and how slow the counting was or, uh, or other uh, memes or gifts uh, to, uh, to just bring a little levity uh, into the midst uh, of this uh, election season. But as of yesterday, it looks like uh, we know that uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be our next president and vice president. And uh, it's no small thing electing uh, new leaders uh, in our country. And, uh, and it's a very uh, momentous occasion as Kamala Harris not only will be the first female vice president, but the first black and Asian American uh, vice president. And uh, I know many, uh, including myself, uh, just uh, rejoice in that and see that as a praiseworthy thing and uh, one in which uh, many follow perhaps in her footsteps and beyond. Uh, and and yet we come to this moment uh, as a nation now that we've had the election uh, doesn't mean that all all the debate and the division goes away. Um, in fact, I saw this week uh, somebody said that a, a divided nation needs a united church. And another person chimed in and said, well, uh, too late. The church is already divided. And it's because the church is divided that the nation is divided. And I think there's a lot of truth in both statements, honestly. Uh, but I also want to remind us that there will be no united church in our nation if there aren't first united churches in our nation and God is calling us uh, to begin that work here in our own house and and so what do we do uh, as uh, as a church uh, in this moment um, is what we do after every election no matter what party wins or is in power we seek uh, as a people to commit uh, to pray for our leaders uh, we will do just that for President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris uh, as well as uh, in our state we elected uh, senators and representatives um, <clears throat> and even local leaders. Uh, but we also commit as a people to continue to apply the gospel to all of life, including how we engage in the political arena, recognizing uh, that God has given us an opportunity to engage and be a part um, of this, the American experiment. And uh, we, we get to uh, it, it actually engage in that work. And it's, uh, it's, it's vital that we, uh, we continue to be faithful uh, to, to do that. Some will be more engaged and, and uh, involved than others, but we want to we want to allow the gospel to permeate all of our lives, uh, even our political engagement. And then, as a church, we remain committed to the mission that God's given us—a mission defined by the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations and the Great Commandment uh, to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's why we say here at Treasuring Christ that we are committed and exist to multiply disciples who delight in, declare, and display the gospel in all of life and for the good of our community. 
And in a major way, the, the way we go about carrying that out is in the context of relationships. And uh, we have been in a sermon series over these uh, last few weeks uh, looking at God's design for relationships, looking at biblical foundations for navigating life with others. And today we come, uh, in, in some ways, uh, perhaps fittingly, today we come to talking about God's design for conflict. You see, as we've been talking Talking about various relationships, uh, really within every relationship, there is the presence of conflict. And, and when we think about conflict in relationships, we can say two things uh, that, that are important for us to understand and that should frame our thinking about this topic. Uh, and the first is that conflict is inevitable. Um, and as some of us are conflict averse, we would rather uh, do anything that we could to avoid a conflict. Some of us, uh, you know, are attracted, uh, so it seems, to conflict. We, we rush headfirst in. Uh, either way, uh, conflict is going to come in relationships because God's design for our relationships is marred uh, and, 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 and we experience brokenness because of sin. Uh, and, and it's ultimately sin that's going to lead to conflict, as we will see today. And so because of the presence of sin, conflict is inevitable in all of our relationships. And yet because of the gospel, conflict is an opportunity because it's through the gospel that God is able to restore us to pursue his design for our relationship, both with him as well as our relationship with others. And so because of the gospel, we can say that conflict is an opportunity to grow and change into who God has called us to be. Uh, there's a, a quote from Paul Tripp. Uh, he has a book I've referenced in this series uh, just titled Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And uh, as he thinks about conflict, uh, he says that conflict is one of God's mysterious and counterintuitive ways that he rescues us from ourselves. I, I love that, that, that conflict is one of God's mysterious and counterintuitive ways in which he rescues us from ourselves. He says that it's through uh, conflict, that God using conflict, um, as well as really almost anything in our life, that God uses conflict to defeat sin in us and to ultimately make us more like Christ with a love for him and with a love for others that reflects his nature. So conflict's inevitable because of sin and conflict is an opportunity because of the gospel. Uh, and so uh, what I want us to do today is I want us to think about uh, really the root of conflict and the remedy for conflict. And we're going to do so by looking at the book of James, James chapter four, verses one through 10. Uh, so if you have your Bible, I would love for you to open up to James chapter four, verses one through 10. Uh, the first thing we're going to see is, is the root of conflict and the root of conflict we find in verses one through five. Uh, read along with me. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? See, according to James chapter four, verses one through five, the root of conflict is sin expressed as selfishness. The root of conflict is sin expressed as selfishness. Verse one shows us that uh, our primary problem isn't the conflict raging around us, outside of us, but our problem is the war that's going on within us. Uh, And that war that's going on within us are sinful desires that lead us to act in sin towards others. Sin blinds us of our dependence on God. And in fact, it, it not only blinds us from our dependence on God, but it turns us away from God and inward. It turns us in on ourselves, focused on ourselves and in the process What happens is when we're focused on ourselves rather than on God, we look at other people and we either fear them or we exploit them for our purposes. So sin uh, is the root of conflict and particularly because it's focused on self. And and we see this in verses two through three. It talks about you you desire and you don't have this unfulfilled uh, uh, desire. You covet and you cannot obtain. Your desires have gone awry and, and we act on this. We murder. You desire and do not have, so you murder. And you might think, well, I'm free from that. Well, don't forget what Jesus said that that when we're angry with a brother or sister, uh, we uh, are also guilty of the same sin that under, uh, really the sin that's underneath murder. Uh, and you covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So here's, here's the cause, here's the root. Uh, and it's, it's a root that's expressed as selfishness. And verse three brings it out most clearly. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Now, when we think about selfishness, um, it's, it's easy to kind of downplay uh, perhaps its significance. You think, well, selfishness isn't as bad as, you know, some other uh, areas of sin. Uh, in fact, sometimes we, we kind of uh, try to gloss over the sinfulness of selfishness and we characterize it, you know, as, uh, as being strong-willed, uh, uh, as, as being determined and, and independent. Um, and, and certainly those characteristics are praiseworthy. Uh, and in some capacity, but to the degree that they reflect a selfishness, uh, having it our way, doing things our way on our time uh, and uh, to the expense of others, it ultimately is a reflection of sin. And verses four through five show us how God looks at our selfishness. Uh, He says, you adulterous people in verse four. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Our selfishness reveals that we're enemies of God, that we're, we're choosing uh, friendship with the world and p- making ourselves enemy with God. You notice that in, uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 4, it's showing us kind of 
our the part that we're playing in it as he's speaking to believers here and and as believers saying when we when we give um, when we submit to this selfishness that's in our heart uh, what we're doing is we're saying my way which is ultimately a way of saying friendship with the world and and I'm choosing to oppose God uh, by having it my way uh, <clears throat> And, and it's amazing when we think about the times in which we, we do this, when we insist on having it our way. Uh, you know, we, if we looked at God as we look at other people, we, we might be tempted to think, well, if I do that, then God probably looks at me and, uh, and probably wants to spite me when I'm choosing my own way and opposing him. But verse five actually uh, shows us, do you suppose it's to no purpose? The scripture says he urged jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. And uh, what, what verse five is saying is that God doesn't look to spite you when you oppose him. He actually is zealous for you. God is not indifferent to our unfaithfulness. But nor does our unfaithfulness mean that God uh, rejects and spurns us, but instead we see his desire to know us uh, and, and we're reminded that God, uh, God desires to, to, to know his people and to work uh, in our lives to accomplish his purpose for us. And, uh, and when we give in to our selfishness and we, um, we, we kind of indulge in that and it leads us into conflict, we see that we're grieving the heart of God who's zealous for us, his people. And it leads us to ask ourselves, why are we so zealous to have it our way when we have a God who zealously desires to know us? Why are we zealous for our own way rather than a desire to please God? Our selfishness is the, the root of our conflict. And I just, just to ask you to think about your, your conflicts in your life, like, you know, there are some conflicts that are going to lead into, into, into some type of conversation where there's either confrontation or there's some type of addressing the issue and seeking uh, to restore uh, the relationship, resolve the conflict. But there's a lot of times when we uh, have conflict kind of internally that never ends up getting to the point of needing to be addressed, but we, uh, we either forget about it and move on, we realize that it wasn't that big of a deal to us, or we consciously choose that this isn't something that needs to go further, that that, um, I can allow love to cover the offense here. But I want you to think about the, the host of conflicts that you experience in your life. Um, we tend to have conflict with those who are closer to us because we are more willing to be honest and fully be ourselves. However, you, you also can have conflict with a neighbor. Uh, you could have conflict with a classmate. You could have conflict with a coworker. Um, <clears throat> we, we especially can have conflict within our family. Um, we can have conflict with a brother or sister, a conflict with parents, a conflict uh, with, uh, with our spouse, a conflict with a roommate, a conflict with a friend in all, in all of those spheres, all the relationships we've been talking about, I want you to think about where you experience conflict the most. Um, and, and, and as we go through this and we continue to talk about God's remedy for conflict, I also want even now for you to begin to think about how, how do you do in responding to conflict? How, how do you do when it arises? How do you handle it when you're at fault? Uh, how do you handle it when you're the one who uh, has been hurt and sinned against 
Um, and <clears throat> when we think about what causes conflict, and we say that sin causes conflict, particularly uh, as it's expressed in selfishness, uh, I appreciate um, a few different categories that that. Paul Tripp gives in, in his book on relationships uh, that um, that he says often lie uh, underneath our conflict. You know, so be, because what happens in in conflict is there's usually something uh, that that is good that we should hold with open hands that we uh, kind of begin to clench with closed fists uh, or something that is a, maybe a desire uh, or would be a blessing. We, we begin to uh, demand it. Um, and, and so uh, I, I thought it was helpful, even as I evaluated my own life, to think about these six areas that often um, are uh, underneath um, my conflict. They're, they're desires that become selfish desires uh, leading to conflict. So the first is comfort, that, that we desire comfort uh, and others uh, shouldn't get in our way of getting it. Uh, we desire pleasure. Uh, some type of uh, just relief and escape. Uh, we desire recognition uh, when <clears throat> uh, we want to, to be seen and appreciated or, or desire power, the ability to, to dictate how things are going to go uh, or even closely related to power control, uh, wanting uh, to, to kind of put our stamp on things and determine uh, what's done, when it's done, how it's done. Uh, and then acceptance, uh, desire to, to be seen and not rejected. Uh, all of these things um, can cause conflict either when we're upset that we don't have them or we're sinfully seeking to get them. So think about that. that. Earlier I said that sin, because it turns us away from God, it blinds us to our dependence on God, it turns us inward. What it ends up doing in our relationship with others is it actually leads us to fear or exploit others. So in our relationships, conflict arises sometimes when we fear that somebody's trying to take from us uh, some of these things, or uh, selfishly we want them and we're exploiting a relationship in order to get them. Um, and so, I mean, you can you can kind of reflect on your own life and on how you see this, uh, but but this can be from really small, inconsequential, um, you know, conflicts to, to really big ones. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, I remember both as a child and uh, and even later in life, uh, the when you're asked to do something that you were already planning on doing. Uh, it's, it's funny how uh, just a, you can just kind of cop an attitude. I, I remember as a kid, well, maybe I intended to take out the trash, uh, but my parents asked me to take out the trash before I got around to it. And, and there was just this sense of, of indignation, you know, that there wasn't, a, a, you know, a, a trust that I would have done it or a recognition. I didn't get the recognition that I was going to do it on my own without them being asked. And so you kind of puff up a little bit and uh, the same can happen. You know, even, even today, somebody asks you to do something, you're like, well, yeah, I was going to do that. You know, it's this sense of you, you don't get the recognition that you desire or, or maybe comfort. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've, if you've had plans that have been interrupted, uh, unexpectedly something happens and maybe it's because somebody needs something from you or somebody didn't do something that they said they were going to do or should have done. And it's leading you to have to do something that you don't want to do. Like this is, this can be classic example of work conflict. You know, when uh, or a group project where you're like, I did my part and you didn't do yours or I shouldn't have to do that because it's your job to do that. And 
And, and there certainly in those moments are, you know, uh, good reasons in, in which somebody may be in the wrong or not. But in terms of the way you respond to that person in that moment, what you're saying is I shouldn't have to work this hard. I shouldn't have to do this. My comfort is unsettled and disturbed. And, and then we respond in sinful, a sinful way and leading leads to conflict, either a conflict in our own heart towards them that we don't tell them about, which is called bitterness and resentment, uh, or a conflict ultimately that, that, that comes out into the, to the open, um, which needs to be resolved. Uh, or, or think about, I mean, this, this comes down to uh, sometimes personality type, to, um, you know, to, uh, to season of life. I know as a parent and particularly as a mom, a desire to, to kind of have things go a certain way with control or uh, wanting, wanting things to play out a certain way and plans getting messed up, desires getting messed up. And, and, and those, those desires and plans are good, nothing wrong with them. And yet in that moment when that happens, the, the selfishness of our own hearts can turn us inward. And then we look at others as our problem, that it's your fault. You did this. And, and it can lead to, lead to conflict or even just a a disappointment that it didn't go our way, and so we withhold ourselves and reserve, uh, hold back from others, leading to, to further conflict. So all of these things can lead to, to conflict, and they're often good things that we hold on to and we demand. We're, we're either upset that somebody isn't giving them to us and demanding them, or we're, we're trying to exploit others, using others to, to get these things for ourselves. But the bent is, is self. We're, we're frustrated that we're not getting something, or, uh, or we're determined to get something for ourselves without consideration of others, and it leads to conflict. So... Think about the last conflict you had. <clears throat> were any, do you think any of these desires were at play? And I don't think this is, list is exhaustive. There may be other desires that, that can be at play for you. But ask yourself, what, what is it that, that leads to conflict? Uh, and, and if your answer is only and always, well, it's clearly it's the other person, um, then you're not thinking enough and you're not looking closely enough. Because the root problem of sin, James 4, 1 says, isn't what's going on around you. It's the war that's going on within you. The root of conflict is sin. But we're not just told the root of our conflict. We're told the remedy for conflict in verses 6 through 10. Verse 6 begins with this good news. But he gives more grace. Say it with me. He gives more grace. Do you believe it? He gives more grace. That's the good news. That what we need most in our conflict isn't a technique to get over it. It, it isn't just a change in circumstances so we can avoid it. What we need most in our conflict is for God to meet us with his grace to sustain us and to enable us to resolve our conflict for our good and for his glory. I don't know who needs to hear this, but the good news of the gospel is that God's grace is greater than your sin and God's grace, listen to me, God's grace is greater than your sin and God's grace is greater than the sin that's been committed against you. He gives more grace. That's the remedy for conflict. 
That's the remedy for all sin. That's how we go from being enemies of God to being friends of God, God, because there's no grace without the cross. Because it's on the cross that God gets what we deserve in Jesus, and we get what we don't deserve, his righteousness, a right relationship with God. Through the cross, we're made right with God. Through the cross, our conflict with God is resolved. Our sin no longer separates us and makes us an enemy. Now, remember, James is writing to believers, encouraging them in their pursuit of God, reminding them that though the root of sin, the root of conflict is our sin, the remedy of God is his grace. And as believers, we have to come back time and time again to his grace. And his grace is what we need in our conflict. But, but I also recognize if, if you're listening to me and you, you, you've, never, you've never come to a point in your life where, where you, you've said in some sense, I'm not going to live my way, but I'm trusting in, in you, God. I'm putting my trust in Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross and that he rose from the dead. And, and I, I, I'm not following my way anymore. I'm following your way. If you haven't done that and, and you hear what I'm talking about, the, the remedy uh, for conflict uh, being the grace of God isn't available to you unless you come and, and receive it from him. See, if, you, if you've yet to put your trust in Christ, you're in the greatest conflict of your life. You're in conflict with God. And God, <laughs> this is good news. It may not sound this way, but it's really good news. God doesn't fight fair. The psalmist tells us, what would we do if God treated us according to our sins? But instead, God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. He no longer holds them against the one who will come to him in repentance, which is turning from our sin in our own way, confessing our sin to God, and faith, trusting and his provision for us in Jesus Christ. I, just as I think about conflict and I talk through how, how we can apply this remedy of grace to our lives and take real steps uh, to grow in our conflict, I can't take any uh, further steps without first inviting you to put your trust in him if you haven't. This, this really is the good news of the gospel, that, that because of God's grace, We can become friends with God. We don't have to be his enemy. There's no sin that's too great. There's none of us that are too good. All of us are invited to come and to find forgiveness through the grace that's found in Jesus Christ. I hope you'll do it today. I hope that you'll say something in your own words, a prayer in your own words, to confess your sin to God, to acknowledge your need for him and to trust in him. Put your trust in him, confessing that he is Lord and that you believe he died for you and rose again. And if you want to talk with us, we would love nothing more than to to talk with you about how you can do that or rejoice with you that you have done that and help you take the next steps of following the Lord and in baptism to make that profession of faith known to others. Please text your name to the number that's on the screen so that we can have that conversation and walk with you uh, in that decision. 
But I remind you that this passage James is talking to believers, reminding us that we have the remedy for conflict. That the remedy isn't a technique, but the remedy is grace. The remedy is what God has provided, not what we can do. And because of that, when we think about God's grace, it's a grace that doesn't just get rid of conflict, but it's a grace that sustains us in conflict and enables us to resolve conflict. So when you're in conflict, what I want you to do is think Think of it this way. In any conflict, there's always at least three people involved. I know the conflict perhaps could be between more than just uh, two people, uh, but there could be groups involved. But there's at least three always involved in a conflict. You, the person that you're in conflict with, and James is telling us, God. It makes a difference when you know that somebody else is watching, right? I don't know if you've actually ever had a conflict when you've been in the presence of others um, to, to married couples. Maybe you've been in that moment where you're in a conflict and yet you're in a public setting or you're in a conflict that you get in the conflict, you know, on the on the ride there in the car and uh, you're, you're pulling up somewhere to go be with a group of people or um, or maybe you're in a conflict with one of your roommates and you got the other roommate that's present and uh, trying to work through all of that. When somebody else is present, it can change the way you engage in conflict, right? In those moments, sometimes it can keep us from doing what we need to do. Um, But when God is present in your conflict, it changes things. And the question that I want you to ask in your conflict is, is God on my side in this conflict? Now, it would be uh, easy to take that question in the sense of like, surely, you know, God agrees with me that I'm right and they're wrong. You know, uh, I'm smart and they're dumb, you know, like they're the problem and I'm I'm good. Uh, but that's that's not what I mean. I want you to think of it this way. When you ask, is God on your side in the conflict? Use verse six as your gauge to answer the question. Look at verse six. Yes, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Grace isn't something that we can do to earn or something that we deserve. We've already seen that grace comes to us freely through Christ, but we must receive grace. And the person who receives grace is the one who admits they need grace, the one who knows they're in need. So the one who receives grace is the one who isn't prideful, but is rather humble. So in your conflict, you can know that God is on your side when you're not stubborn and resisting in pride, but instead you're humble and open to God. So the ideal conflict is when the two people or the two groups in conflict both have God on their side. Because when both parties seek to be humble, submitting to God, then there's truly the beauty of restoration. But as far as it depends on you, in any any type of conflict you find yourself in, you can be sure that God is on your side when you're willing to humble yourself, admitting 
and reaching out for God's grace because it's grace. It's not just grace that gets rid of the conflict. It's grace that sustains us in the midst of it and enables us to resolve it. So what posture do you take in your conflict? Are you bent upon, you know, putting down your heels and, you know, bearing in and just not not acknowledging your your fault? You know, I've been there in some conflicts at times, uh, whether it's the conflict in your mind with another person or or an actual uh, conflict in conversation where, um, you know, maybe you feel like you're not being heard or represented rightly or something's misunderstood and and you just you're determined. Okay, you're going to act that way. Well, let's go. Right. Like they took the gloves off. I'm taking the gloves off. They go low. I'm going lower. Right. Uh, that, that, there's a kind of prideful mentality. Um, even when we know we're wrong, we can pridefully resist uh, seeking to restore conflict in a healthy way. But James is telling us wisdom from God. Wisdom from God is that when you find yourselves in these moments, recognize your need for God and submit yourself to him. Humble yourself before God. And really, humility is is the main point uh, of the latter half of this passage. In verses 6 through 10, we have uh, kind of bookends uh, of, in verse 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 10, therefore, humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. God's grace is available to those who humble themselves. And if you don't humble yourself, if you choose to say, I've got it. Well, good luck with that, right? Is God saying, you need to recognize your need for me. And, and you know, in some ways, it's, 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 it's helpful to think about, uh, for me, as I, I think about at times a conflict that uh, I've had with, uh, with one of my children. Um, when, when maybe there's something that needs to be addressed, um, but there's like this innate uh, sense in, uh, in a child that carries over uh, into adulthood. Um, and uh, speaking for myself, where, where sometimes we just, we just refuse to admit <laughs> that we're wrong. It, it just doesn't matter. It could be as clear as day. Um, and we just won't admit it. Uh, there's all kinds of examples. Um, I'm sure you can think of some yourself. But, but because of pride... We, we just resist to admit our need for help, particularly our help from God. And so uh, verses 6 through 10 tell us to humble ourselves before God, that the remedy for conflict is God's grace and the way we receive God's grace. And, and we can apply that grace to our conflict is through humility. And, and really, verses 7 through 10 kind of further unpack what a humble posture looks like. We see in verse 7 that we're to submit to God. Uh, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Uh, That there's this sense of um, God's way is good, wise, and true, and right. I'm not my own authority. God is my authority. I'm not the arbiter of truth in my conflict. God is the arbiter of truth. I don't get to dictate what's right and wrong. God says what's right and wrong. Therefore, if I've been wronged, I can be clear and confident in that. And also, if I have committed wrong, if I have sinned, I can be convicted and repent of that. That's, That's the submission to the Lord to say, God, you are Lord. I am not. And that's that's perhaps the most radical thing that humility would lead us to do is to say God's in charge. I'm not. 
And that further expresses itself. If God is in charge, like I'm not, I'm not giving in to the devil, right? Not today, Satan. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Put, put your thoughts on a leash when you're in that conflict. Oh, you want to go down that dark hole. You, they did this and it's probably because of this. And then they believe this and then they're going to do this. And you know what? And it's just like I thought it was. They're just who I thought they were, right? Like we can, we can go down that route and, and, it's, and it's Satan tempting us to just deepen the conflict, He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And the couple with resisting the devil, don't just resist the devil and be proud of yourself, but resist the devil and draw near to God. God, I need you. Help me. I don't know what to do, God. God, I trust you. And what a promise that when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And he goes on and he says, um, really, after he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, then he, he begins to, to kind of talk about repentance. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Particularly there in the latter half of verse 8 through verse 9, what, what I actually think James is telling us, what we need to do in terms of what humility would lead us to do, is to take sin seriously. You know, we, we jokingly said earlier, sometimes we can dis, be dismissive of our selfishness and we can call it other things. When, James, James is, and God's word is not content in allowing us to make light of sin. It calls us to take sin seriously. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Just focus on the external. And purify your heart. So focus on the internal. And then he, and then he begins to talk about uh, being wretched and mourning and weeping. It says, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. It sounds, it sounds so negative. But, but really what James is saying is take your sin seriously. That the path to growth in our lives and the path to really growth even in our conflict is seeing our sin as God does. Look, if you think lightly of your sin and little of your sin, you will not be in a position to respond to it in the way that God would call us to. To make light of our sin will put us in a position to fail to see the urgency and the importance of pursuing restoration and pursuing peace with others. But when we see our sin as God does, it it ought to to bring about a certain type of sorrow. And this sounds counterintuitive. It's almost like today we think to be a Christian, it just means to be happy all the time. Like, you know, that little fish on the wall. uh, It's like, don't worry, be happy. Like I think sometimes we think that that's that's like this. Every Christian should just be happy and jolly. And um, and there is true joy to be had for the Christian. But there's true sorrow to be had as well, because sin is real and sin is serious and sin put Christ on the cross. And it wasn't just somebody else's sin. It was our sin, my sin. And when I say this, at the same time, uh, our own tendency, when we hear the seriousness of our sin, our tendency is to think shame. But that's not what God's word says. When you hear your sin, you should think sorrow. Sorrow for what your sin does to God and what it did to Christ. 
rather than being smug and taking joy in our sin, instead we should turn our laughter into mourning, our weeping, our, uh, our joy into weeping, because we're reminded of the, the seriousness of our sin. We grieve our sin as believers. And when we grieve our sin, we're reminded of God's grace. We're reminded of God's forgiveness. And that's what produces joy. Sorrow that reminds us of the cross, that leads us to joy. I love how one commentator put it. He said uh, of James and what he's describing, he, say, he says that James calls for a, decising, a decisive taking of sides. Submit to God, resist the devil. Uh, and that leads to the practice of the presence of God, drawing near to God, and he will draw near to us. This in turn prompts the longing to be like him in holiness, to, to cleanse uh, our hearts and to cleanse our hands and to purify our hearts. And as always, the more we pursue God's likeness, the more deeply and sorrowfully our sinfulness and shortcomings are exposed. But the Lord sets us on this downward path before us because there is no other way up, that the way up is in repentance down, that, that the, the way we find joy is to, to, to have sorrow over our sin, that the way we, we find life uh, is dying to ourself. Uh, it's the pattern and picture of the gospel throughout God's word, that when we turn from our own way, we find God's everlasting way. So as, as we think about the remedy uh, for conflict being God's grace that uh, expresses itself in humility, it's a, it's a humility that's deeply theological. It's not just, a, oh, I'm just going to think lightly. I'm not going to think about myself very much. I'm just going to take a, you know, more of a quiet and humble posture in this conflict. No, it's, it's deeply theological because it comes from a submission to God. And his authority that works itself out in, a, in a, an awareness of our need to fight sin, resist the devil, submit to God, draw near to him, fellowship with God, which leads us into taking our sins seriously. All of that type of humility leads us and puts us in a position to resolve conflict, not by just a technique, but by the grace of God. And when you allow the grace of God to, to motivate your, uh, your resolving of conflict, what it begins to do is it, it provides not only healing where conflict was, but it strengthens your relationship. So in light of the root of sin and the, the remedy of sin, I want to give us some real steps to take in conflict. And we'll, we'll close with this. Um, and when I think about real steps to take in conflict, it, it, it could be described this way. I think ultimately God is calling us as his people to be peaceable and to be peacemakers. I think both of those are needed today. We need to be reminded of both of those words. God's calling us as his people to be peaceable and to be peacemakers. Romans 12, 18 says, as far as it depends on you, if possible, live peaceably with all people. Uh, and, then, and then we ultimately see uh, Jesus reminds us in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I, I love that, uh, that coupling together. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they be, be called the sons of God. We are never more like God than when we are making peace. And we are never more unlike God than when we refuse to make peace. 
So if we're going to be peaceable and peacemakers, what steps can we take um, towards that end? And the first is this. I want you to identify what drives ungodly conflict in your life. I want you to think about uh, what often leads you into conflict. What are the things that, um, that, that kind of turn your affection from God? What are the things that you elevate over God that, that should be held with an open hand, that you clench with a closed fist? Could it be pleasure or power or acceptance or control or affirmation? Is there something else that's going on that, that uh, either you fear you won't get or you're trying to get from others and are frustrated that you don't have it and so you sinfully lash out against them or withhold yourself from them. And, and so identify what drives ungodly conflict, but um, recognize what your default response to conflict is. Um, this has been helpful for me over the years. I, I've recognized when you think about fight or flight, um, in my uh, typical response to conflict, I'm more of a flight uh, person. And I, I don't so much uh, just easily boil over um, at, at a moment's notice, but I'm often uh, more quiet and reserved, even passive in my, uh, in my response to conflict. I, I, I thought you, you might have this experience for me. I saw uh, some pretty volatile conflict in my childhood and I kind of in my mind process say, I don't want to do that. And so I kind of revert to this other end. Uh, fight or flight both have uh, real, real uh, consequences and recognize what you do. Do you try to avoid it at all costs? Which when you do that, uh, sometimes it can mean that you, you know, there's peace, but, but often uh, it's just the absence of conflict, not the presence of peace. Uh, restoring conflict leads to the presence of peace. Avoiding conflict just leads to the absence of outward conflict. Um, or do you, do you rush in? Are you determined to be right in every circumstance? Like, are, are, you, uh, are you more committed to being seen as right than to loving uh, the other person and working towards restoration in a, con a conflict? Uh, notice kind of where, where you, what your typical response is. Um, and then third, commit to going to God with your conflict. I think one of the most helpful disciplines for me in my, my own experience of conflict is uh, whenever I see myself going in or have found myself in it, just being able uh, to quietly in my mind say, God, I need you right now. Help me to know how to respond. God, help me to hold my tongue. Help me to listen. God, help me to respond. Uh, I, you, I don't know if you're there and you're in those, those moments. Sometimes you're like, I don't know what to say. Sometimes we just kind of give up and we're like, well, I don't know what to do. So, you know, I'm just going to I'm just going to go about my business. Uh, I'm just going to avoid it. That's too hard. I don't want to deal with it. No, take your conflict to God. Commit to going to him in the midst of it and asking him for his help. I think this in part is the posture of humility that we need in order to receive the grace that will enable us to restore uh, our conflict. Uh, and then also consider the other person. And when, when you're in conflict, it's often you're thinking about all the things that have perhaps you perceive that have been done wrong to you and how you're going to confront or address them. But it's helpful also to think about the other person. Do I need to confront them or maybe do I need to pursue more relationship? Do I need to be patient or do I need to encourage? Do I need to overlook an offense? Uh, am I trying to, to hurt them or make them pay for what they've done to me? 
Uh, consider consider the other person. And, and there's different things that are needed for different types of people and different types of conflict. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 14 through 18, um, we see uh, Paul encouraging uh, different types of confrontation with other believers. He says, we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ. As you consider the other person, you begin to think, what do they need from me? What do I need to do uh, in order to resolve this conflict? And then keep short accounts. Yeah, I think sometimes we, when conflict arises, we try to we try to sometimes put it off until another time. But often, the more time we give conflict, the more trouble it gives us. So look to God for his grace to help you address uh, the conflict. And, and when you fail to address conflict, often what you're doing is you're cutting yourself off from experiencing God's grace that you need in that conflict. But you're also hardening your heart to the person that you're in conflict with, making it harder ultimately to seek um, resolution and, and restoration. And then ultimately be intentional in resolving your conflict. Um, again, some of these points have particularly have been helped by uh, Paul Tripp, um, but they're not uh, uh, maybe exhaustive, but a, a good starting point when we think about uh, being intentional in conflict. And, and the first uh, is exactly what Jesus told us to do, and that's to own your own sin in any conflict. First, take the log out of your own eye before you try to help your brother take the speck out of his eye. Jesus was telling us to address ourselves first before trying to help uh, our brother or our sister. And, and then ask yourself, I find that just so helpful to always ask myself in any, any offense, uh, can this be overlooked by love? Would, would love call me to overlook this offense? You might ask yourself, was it done intentionally or unintentionally? Is this an isolated incident or a recurring one? Uh, was it significant? Did it harm others? Does it harm the witness uh, of Christ in the church? Is it an overt sin or is it a matter of preference and personality that rubs me the wrong way? All of that can lead to, to perhaps allowing, we saw it last week, that, um, uh, that a fool shares what uh, broadcasts to others what's been shared with him, but love covers an offense. Um, and then Jesus, or in the New Testament, Paul in Romans would talk to us about allowing love to cover an offense in Romans 12. But if that offense can't be overlooked by love, then seek restoration. And here sometimes we think that we need to seek confrontation. And yes, it might involve some type of confrontation. But Galatians 6, 1 says, if there's anyone found in sin, then seek to restore that brother. What we're actually doing and confronting someone about an offense is should be from the posture of restoration, a desire to restore the relationship. No conflict, um, or I should say the goal uh, when we uh, go to someone, it's not to own them. It's not to make them feel the way we felt, not to shame them into apologizing. But instead, it's to share honestly the offense, because without there being truth shared, there can't be restoration. But then allow for restoration through the seeking of forgiveness when you are guilty of the sin and the giving of forgiveness when you've been sinned against and uh, forgiveness is sought. So we have to seek restoration. 
when an offense can't be overlooked. And then ultimately, uh, whether we've overlooked something or we've sought restoration, we have to work to change. I think sometimes in conflict, we only think about getting to the moment of resolving the immediate presence of the, of the conflict. But for, for us to grow and for us to be peace, peacemakers, we have to actually work to change. No conflict resolution is complete without a commitment to working towards change. Maybe there's something that you need to do to make restitution for something that you've done to hurt someone. Maybe there's something that needs to, an attitude that needs to change. Maybe you need to begin to come up with a plan for how to respond differently uh, when you're in a similar circumstance. Maybe you, you need to have a conversation about getting on the same page and setting the right expectations with one another. But we have to work to change as we make uh, restoration and then ultimately get help if needed. Most conflict will be handled between two people, but there's nothing wrong when conflict can't be resolved to seek the help of others, especially what Galatians would say, those who are spiritual to come alongside you and help you apply God's grace to your conflict so you can seek resolution and ultimately restoration as God desires. You see, in all of our relationships, conflict is inevitable. But um, just because conflict is inevitable because of sin, it doesn't mean that conflict isn't an opportunity. Because of the gospel, conflict is an opportunity to grow and change. You see, I think when we think about what God wants to do through, uh, through conflict and particularly through resolving conflict in our relationships, um, it, it's, it's God wanting to move into our lives and to begin a renovation project, an ongoing renovation project. The problem is sometimes we uh, we think that um, maybe God just wants to kind of update the house and make it a nice cottage. Uh, but but really what God wants to do, I, I get this from C.S. Lewis. Uh, he says God doesn't want to just move in and, and uh, give you a nice cottage. He's 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 creating a palace. Uh, and, and through resolving conflict and working towards restoration in our relationships, what God begins to do, uh, not only rescuing us from ourselves and kind of setting up just this neat little thing over here, but he's expanding who we want, who he's called us to be and who he's made us to be, allowing his grace to be applied to our lives, strengthening our relationships, accomplishing his purposes in our life. He's tearing down this wing over here. He's, he's ripping up this flooring and putting down new flooring. He's, he's not just hanging a new fix. Picture, but he's, uh, he's providing a new layout to that floor. Uh, he's digging down and, and re-solidifying the foundations and adding on the, uh, on the, the back porch and, and, and fixing the post on the front porch. He's doing foundational work, expanding the work that he wants to do because God not only wants to build uh, a nice little cottage for you, he's, he's working to build a palace and he intends to come and dwell in it. God wants to be at work in our relationships and God accomplishes his work in our relationships, even through conflict. As we respond and receive his grace, working itself out in our lives in humility uh, so that we can not only be peaceable, but that we can be peacemakers. Let's pray.